I'm kind of talking loud because the microphone disappeared, but that's okay because I can talk into the side of Joe's head and you'll, you'll pick it up, right? But anyway, um, I don't need to introduce Joe, I don't think. I think most of you know the Reverend Dr. Joe Burnham, right? Um, Joe's been part of our church for a long time, hasn't been around as much as Paul because he has some other obligations, but it's just I wonderful to have Joe preach from time to time, and so um, I just want to... I, I got to introduce him, but I wanted to pray for you. And I kind of did pray, but I'm going to pray again right now. Need all I can get. Yeah. Okay. So God, I just thank you for Joe. Open our hearts to what you have to say to us through Joe and bless Joe as he speaks. God, we thank you for him in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So as I was listening to that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, um, two people came to mind that you don't normally have come to mind in the same thought process. One was the, the, the Sufi mystic Hafiz. And the other was Donald Rumsfeld. And, um, and, and what came to mind as I was sitting there is, so, so Hafiz has this poem that he wrote, and, and, and it says, the small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage who has to duck his head when the moon is low keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy, prisoners. And the way Donald Rumsfeld came into this mix is I remember his whole, you know, there's the, there's the things that we know and there's the things that we don't know. And then there's the things that we don't, that we think we know that we don't know. And there's the things that we don't know that we don't know. <laughs> and that whole thing. And I think when we get caught up in the, the things that we think we know, but we don't know, or the things that we don't know that we don't know, we find ourselves in cages. And we need Emmanuel to come and to help us see and to help us know and to help us understand a bigger picture of the, of the world that we're in so that we can pick up those keys and unlock cages and step into our calling as the children of God. Now, that was just a pre-sermon riff. So if anyone out there is timing the sermon, like, go ahead and reset that stopwatch. <laughs> so on a quiet evening some 30 years ago, my family gathered in the living room and asked that oh-so-common question, what are we going to watch? My dad pulled out either the TV listings from the newspaper or a paperback copy of TV Guide and began mentioning things he thought might interest my brother and I. When he said, Highlander, the discussion ended. Even without reading the synopsis of the movie. My mom, being a good Scot, was all for it and the rest of the family was willing to roll with it. While the opening scene confused all of us, by the time the movie ended, to say the least, my mom was disappointed and my dad, brother, and I were ready to watch again. For those of you who aren't familiar, the opening scene takes place in Madison Square Garden with professional wrestlers grappling in the squared circle. Two members of the audience make their way to an empty garage where they pull out their swords and engage in an epic battle with one another. When the winner is clear, the Highlander, Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod, declares, there can be only one, and then chops off his opponent's head. 
The rest of the movie tells the history of a group of immortals involved in a centuries-long tournament where one by one they chop off each other's heads until only one remains. Sort of a disturbing opening to a message titled, There Can Be Only One. And yet, in this dog-eat-dog world, that's often how things go. You're either the dog who eats or the dog who is eaten. The winner or the loser. For there to be only one demands elimination. Or at least the abject subjugation of everyone else. We do it as individuals, be it in the office or classroom. In our communities as we guard our interests from those others. Or as a country wanting to expand our influence and increase our security. It's a hard road to a place where there is only one. But this morning I want to explore another path to oneness. A path revealed in a couple verses of Galatians that we, like the song, O Song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, know all too well. Perhaps so well that when reading the Apostle Paul's letters, we tend to blow right past them. In the process, we don't really notice how contextually out of place they are. But if we pause for a moment and recognize the contextual odyssey, it invites us on this potentially uncomfortable journey to oneness. So you can think of this message as coming in two parts. First, we will try and make sense of the the text. Then we will explore what it might look like to apply it to our lives today. So our verses, Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what makes these words so contextually out of place? To begin, they contain multiple references that don't appear anywhere else in Galatians. They have the only reference to the practice of baptism. The first first century socioeconomic divisions of slave and free. And Paul's only reference in Galatians to gender. Yet despite the bulk of what what Paul writes not appearing anywhere else in the letter, they serve as a culmination in Paul's rhetorical point. They are the conclusion of the first three chapters of Galatians. Galatians. As a quick overview, Paul opens talking about how the Galatians have abandoned the gospel, the good news of Jesus, by listening to those who said that in order to be in relationship to the God of Israel, they first needed to get circumcised. Then he goes through the whole story, his whole story, arguing the validity of his message and preaching before he restates his message of justification by grace through faith, linking it to God's promise originally spoken to Abraham, who believed and was credited as righteous. So if God has always been and will always be about grace, then what was the role of the law, including circumcision? Paul describes it as a temporary guardian, something to keep us safe until our eyes are open to the grace revealed in Christ. He concludes, 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all heirs of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Then starting in Galatians 4, it moves on to what it means to be heirs of God. So why use this content that seems to have nothing else to do with the rest of the letter as a central conclusion of the letter? That's rather odd. But while most of these verses that form the culmination of Paul's argument are foreign to the rest of the Galatians, one segment of those verses appears over and over again. The discussion of Jews and Greeks and how the good news of Jesus is so inclusive that embraces both the children of Abraham and those the Jewish people commonly lump together as goy. You could argue that all of Galatians could be summed up as there is no Jew nor Greek. So what's going on here in Galatians 3? One clue to unpacking this comes in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul, same author, writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, And we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. Notice how Paul goes from an analogy of the human body to the body of Christ to a verse that echoes much of Galatians 3 back to an analogy of the body. It's almost as if Paul is using something familiar to his readers A baptism that breaks down our divisions and makes us one. To illuminate the unfamiliar. Each Corinthian spiritual gift being a useful contribution to the larger body of Christ. We see the same thing minus the reference to baptism in Colossians 3.11 where Paul writes, There is not Jew or Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. This stripping away such divisions is explained as part of Christ reconciling all things to himself as the firstborn of all creation. It sure looks like Paul repeatedly quotes slightly different variations of a common saying amongst the faithful. One that became central to the church's self-understanding in the two decades since the death and resurrection of Jesus. And given the references to baptism in both Galatians and Corinthians, some argue that these verses could both pull from a very simple early baptismal creed. A declaration that early adult converts would make. Not as a confession of what they believed, but as a statement of how their faith would change the way they would live in the world. A life there was, neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Further supporting this conclusion comes a couple of common expressions of gratitude spoken by affluent men in that world. On the Roman side, you have the pre-Socratic philosopher and father of science, Thales of Miletus, saying, there are three attributes for which I am grateful to fortune. That I was born first, human and not an animal. Second, man and not a woman. And third, Greek and not a barbarian. Socrates took the phrase and reworked it regularly, saying, Grateful am I for having been born human and not a brute, a man and not a woman, Greek and not a barbarian. On the Jewish side, Rabbi Judah, the most frequently referenced sage in the Talmud, was well known in the second century for teaching his students, all boys of course, to recite the following. Blessed art thou who did not make me a Gentile. Blessed art thou who did not make me a woman. Blessed art thou who did not make me uneducated. That last line was later adapted in the Talmud to slave. To further the offensiveness, it was not uncommon for someone to ask, is not a slave the same as a woman? The question came with the expected response that a slave is more contemptible. So in a world where affluent men, both Jew and Roman, those who held the most power in each of their cultures, would regularly celebrate that they weren't the other, and even more so that they were not women or slaves, it seems quite likely that those baptized in the early church responded with the counter-confession, there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. There is no male and female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. This would mean that in Galatians, 1 Corinthians, and Colossians, Paul calls his readers back to the vision of the world they embraced when they first came to faith. A vision of a world as God intended it to be from before the foundations of the earth. One we lost sight of in the fall and can now see clearly again in Christ. But what exactly does it mean? Because obviously in the beginning, before the fall, there were male and female. In fact, the saying by, in, in saying, by switching from Jew nor Greek and slave nor free to male and female, it almost seems to echo Genesis 1. When God says, let us create them in our own image, male and female. Is there an attempt to argue that these distinctions be they biological sex or what we typically classify as masculine and feminine are no more? This idea of the eradication of differences and the creation of human homogeny might sound good in some ways. After all, would we be opposed to everyone agreeing that a post-racial society would be a good thing? But it doesn't seem to make sense given biology. So what does Paul mean when he says, there is no... To answer this question, we go back to the larger context of Galatians and see what it means for Jews and Greeks to be one. We see clearly in the ancient world that whatever tribe, culture, or nation you happen to be from, there was 
a built-in thankfulness that you are not a member of some other tribe, culture, or nation. At some level, I'm sure this was nothing more than a form of national pride. It feels good to know that you're part of the in crowd. Of course, to know that you're in often requires knowing that others are out. So the Greeks become proud of being Greek and then highlight their philosophical values. The Romans, proud that they are Romans, then highlight their war machine and expansive infrastructure. Jews, celebrating Jews, point to their unique relationship with God. Then, of course, all three start to demonize the other simply because they are other. But there might be something deeper brewing under all of this. One of the things that's universally true about the human psyche is that we fear the other and often become hostile towards it. It's not like us. Sometimes it makes sense. After all, foreign armies repeatedly conquered Israel throughout the Old Testament, and the Romans spent decades trying to suppress their enemies and bring about the peace of Rome. And yet, even with this sometimes reasonable cultural hostility, while Jewish and Roman men thank God that they were not the other or some foreigner, the Apostle Paul, embodying his confession that there was no Jew or Greek, sets out with an entirely different agenda. As a Jew with Roman citizenship, he went to the other. The Gentiles in Galatia a region where the Gauls settled after they invaded the Balkans. In other words, they were Celts from the European mainland who until recently stood as a significant threat to the Roman Empire. This means they weren't Jews like Paul, nor a Roman citizen like Paul. They were in every way other to Paul. And yet he went to them anyway. And it wasn't an afterthought. He went to them first. Most of the cities Paul visited on his first missionary journey were in Galatia. And whenever he set out on future missionary journeys, he would always return there in route, even though sailing right past them would have been faster. Galatians is also the first of Paul's letters. And when he arrived, he didn't demand that they embrace Jewish law. To the contrary, he insisted that their behaving like Jews would put them in opposition to the gospel. In other words, he did not try and create oneness by demanding conformity, cultural assimilation, or a unified doctrinal confession. Rather, he declared that they were already one. They just didn't know it yet. Paul's oneness is based on the recognition that as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. And in both cases, the word all means all. This means that all people are God's children and fellow heirs. The only difference is that some realize it while others don't. 
In a world where people were fixated on dividing and categorizing themselves, Paul's missionary journeys become extensive attempts to help people see and live in the reality of who they already are because Paul knew there could be only one. So how does this shape our understanding of Paul's confession that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for we all are all one in Christ Jesus? Contrary to a unification based on some kind of homogeny or a singularity that comes when the other is annihilated or subjugated, the earliest church that emerged immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus embraced a oneness of humanity as children and heirs of God. In a world that sought to dehumanize the other, be that otherness based on ethnicity, class, or gender, the early church recognized the agency, value, and humanity of everyone, especially those most marginalized throughout human history. I have to admit, at one point in my life, I would have found everything I just said perplexing. After all, Just like the masses in Paul's day, we are seeped in a society that divides people. This is true when it comes to ethnicity, class, and gender, just like it was in the ancient world. We also see it with politics and how easy it is to vilify Democrats or Republicans. As someone who thinks of of our functioning in society as more top and bottom rather than right or left, I have a hard time not dehumanizing Jeff, Jeff Bezos and the Walmart heirs. There might even be a strong temptation in this room to, to demonize Raiders and Chiefs fans. And this is just as true in the church as it is broader society. Sunday morning remains the most segregated hour in America. I cannot tell you how many people I've met over the years who won't darken the doors of a church because of the looks they got when they showed up in their best tattered clothes their single mother could afford. And how many church bodies continue to marginalize women, often using readings of Paul that ignore context and grammar, something I have come to describe as the disorder of creation argument. If nothing else, we often want to take the words in Christ and assume that means there are people who are out of Christ, as if there's some place you can go where the love of God isn't. This is just the natural outcome of living in an us and them world. So if both your experience in broader society and your experience in the church teaches you that it's all about us and them, then of course all of this talk of oneness sounds foreign. After all, it demands an entirely different way of thinking about yourself and the world around you. And that's the point. A couple years ago, I stood up here and talked about two ways of being in the world, the way of love and the way of power. To merge it with language Peter often uses, we could call it the way of giving and receiving and the way of taking. I think of them like operating systems, just like you would find on a computer. You have one way, power, another operating system, love. Now, without trying to, like, say either of these operating systems recognize 
one or those other things. I grew up a Windows guy. I'm guessing it's because my dad was an engineer, and even before most people had personal computers, I was tinkering around in DOS. This naturally evolved into using Windows and developing a staunch dislike of all things Mac. Then, in the early 2000s, I became friends with a guy named Bob. He was a, a creative type, a web developer, and a super cool guy, and, and we're actually still friends today. And Bob was such a devoted Apple user that when a new model was released, if he didn't place a pre-order, the company would call him to make sure everything was okay. As I got to know Bob, I began to wonder if maybe Apple products weren't so horrible after all. It took about a year, but I finally purchased an iPod mini. And the rest was history. That little box felt so good in my hand and gliding my thumb on the, on the scroll circle. It, it felt almost as soothing to my soul as the music that played through my headphones. If everything else, Apple, felt this good, why would I want to use anything else? A year later, I bought an iBook and never looked back. Yes, it's an iPad in my hands right now. <laughs> Now, I will admit, at first, the iBook threw me. Simple things like not having a double-click mouse confused me, but the more time I spent with it, the more I loved it, and the more foreign Windows became. Today at work, I have to use a Windows laptop, and I admit it, I hate it. Everything from the user interface to the keyboard irritates me. It just doesn't feel right anymore. Now, don't take the analogy too far again. Despite my lack of appreciation for a Windows environment, I don't want to suggest that it is analogous to the way of power and pretend that Apple embodies the way of love. They're both corporations. They're both all about power. Rather, I use the analogy to explore the experiential transition from one operating system. Power. Taking. Us and them to a different operating system. Love. Giving and receiving. Oneness. When you grow up immersed in an operating system of power where everything is about us and them, it's hard at first to imagine anything different. But we have to, but I have discovered over time that just like my move from Windows to Mac, when you begin to embrace the way of love, when you believe that there is only one, it changes everything, and you have a hard time imagining why you would ever go back. One of the most dramatic ways I experienced this began as an undergrad and culminated in seminary. I believe it was second semester of my freshman year, that we read a book in one of my classes about educational disparities in America. It was a strange book to read at my deeply conservative Lutheran liberal arts school, and as far as I know, it is the one and only time the adjunct professor was invited on campus. While I don't remember much from the book, I still vividly recall reading a chapter on East St. Louis. 
I remember reading about children being taught in schools that were literally falling apart around them, where heat didn't work in the winter and the AC failed to temper hot and humid Midwestern summers. And that was before we got to the quality of teachers, the inner city draws, and the instability of families, and so many other factors that would work to keep kids trapped in poverty. Ultimately, I found the descriptions within it so sensationalized that I simply wrote them off. I couldn't believe there was anywhere in America where a child was expected to learn in those kinds of conditions. There was something going on under the surface. I grew up a staunch believer that we live in a meritocracy. And that outcomes are entirely about individual responsibility. And that end, to that end, if the book were true, I could no longer hold on to those beliefs. To probe even deeper, if we didn't operate on a level playing field and things like where and how you grew up have a significant outcome on who you become then it could challenge my own performance-based identity. Was I a 13-year-old Eagle Scout because I was more driven and devoted and focused than all of my peers and I earned it? Or maybe it had something to do with how engaged my parents were in scouting. Then again, it might come from being performance-driven and desperately seeking to prove I was good enough? Were my grades and academic performance a consequence of hard work on my end, or did growing up knowing that I would have a roof over my head, food on the table, and a mom at home give me a significant leg up? Not just on the kids in the inner city, but the kid sat at the desk next to mine. Or maybe God just blessed me, and I won the genetic brainy lottery. In the end, anything that potentially undermined the idea that it was entirely because of my own hard work and performance was dangerous. Because that was the basis of my identity and self-understanding. And if I didn't have that, who would I be? What would make me significant. So in my desperate attempt to matter, I created the division of hard workers and lazy. And then rejected a book that brought the category of lazy into question. Eight years later, I enrolled at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis and began my training as a pastor. As part of our program, each student was assigned a fieldwork church where we would attend on Sundays, teach Bible studies, and preach our first sermons. As fate would have it, I was assigned to Unity Lutheran Church in East St. Louis. That first Sunday morning, Driving to the church, my heart absolutely broke. I drove by dilapidated school buildings, the same ones I'd read about eight years earlier. 
I began to wonder if that book I'd read actually understated the reality because the truth was so unbelievably abhorrent. That morning, I met a number of neighborhood children who would come to church on Sunday mornings because there were adults there who would pay attention to them. A few of them had parents who were strung out, but most of them just had single moms who were working two and three jobs, trying to keep a roof over the head and food on the table. In either case, they were functionally absent parents. And these kids suffered both academically and even more so emotionally. Over the next three years, I spent hours every week in inner city St. Louis and East St. Louis hearing the stories of people who lived there. We worked side by side on neighborhood projects. We wept and hugged at funerals. We worshiped together. And despite coming from two radically different worlds in many ways, we began to live as one. In the process, I got a small taste of what it was like to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. It changed the way I see the world, and yes, it unraveled my own. It's not that I was a bad person before. I'd done plenty of donating and food distribution and service projects focused on helping the less fortunate, but it was always that us and them dynamic. They were the poor people who needed my help, and it made me feel good to help them. But I didn't love them, because I didn't know them, because we weren't one. That changed during my seminary years. Those times began to also change the way I read the Bible. For the first time, I could see how it is a text from Genesis to Revelation that shows preferential treatment for the marginalized, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. Be a God picking Abram who worshipped other gods and taking him to a foreign land. A God choosing Israel, not because they were a great nation, but because they lacked power in the ancient world. To the laws of Leviticus instructing Israel to treat, treat women and foreigners far better than they were in surrounding cultures. To Jesus coming into the world not surrounded by pop and circumstance, but dirty shepherds and animal feed. To the full revelation of God's love happening on a humiliating instrument of torture. Throughout the text, God lifts up everything that those in power despise. And if that is the heart of God, then as a child and heir, it should be my heart too. After all, isn't that what it means to put on Christ? Crazy thing is, while these experience obliterated my performance-based identity, they also gave me the one tool I needed to ultimately put myself back together. 
It started with me becoming less judgmental and more compassionate to my inner city family. Then it turned to people closer to home. And ultimately, it took me a while, I was able to extend it towards myself and come to the realization that I am significant not because of how I perform or what I do or what I've earned or my status or my whatever makes me an us and them a them, but because I am a beloved child of God. You could say that time in the hood taught me the nature of grace and just how expansive the love of God is. But you don't need to spend countless hours in the inner city to have those experiences. All you have to do is ask, who do I know that feels other to me? It can be someone in your family or your neighborhood. Perhaps it's someone at work or even right here in the sanctuary. Heck, it could quite possibly be me right now. Once you identify them, think about how you would describe yourself and them. Earlier, I offered worker, hard worker, and lazy. Maybe you're a Democrat and they're a Republican, or the other way around. You might be an executive while they're a worker. You might be charismatic and they think there's no better spiritual gift than administration. Perhaps they're a Calvinist and you are a Lutheran. Once you have your terms, take a bit of poetic license with Galatians 3. Say it. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no female, male or female. There is no, you fill in the blanks. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. In the end, who knows what makes them feel so other to you? But odds are it's because there's a whole lot about them that you don't know or understand. Perhaps like me, they were desperately insecure and shame-riddled, longing to be enough so they have to create an us and them. Then again, they might have found a group that embraced them as they were, and so they adopted whatever ideology that group held. Maybe they had a traumatic experience that has them afraid of those they now perceive as other. The reality is, just like you, they are a person longing to know they're loved. And perhaps the fact that they feel so other to you makes you the perfect person to love them. Seems that's what Jesus was getting at when he told us that we have to have a love that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Crazy thing is, is this really isn't all that different than what we talk about every week here when we invite each other to believe the gospel. 
The only thing different is that this time we're not focusing on your belovedness, but theirs. One more thing. As we prepare to come forward and receive this meal, in 1 Corinthians 11, the chapter right before his analogy on spiritual gifts and the body of Christ, the one where Paul uses the same argument he pitches in Galatians, Paul writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Then he goes on to talk about how they practice the Lord's Supper, including asking the question, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? As best as we can tell, the Corinthian church would gather for a community meal and they would maintain the divisions of the broader society. The more affluent men and their wives would eat first, enjoying a lavish meal. Outside on the portico, the widows and slaves would gather and wait, hoping there might be enough left over to fill their bellies. In other words, from the outside, it would be hard to tell how the church was different than the rest of the world. This, as Paul says, is not for the better, but for the worse. So much so that the church would have been better off if everyone just ate at home and then gathered without the agape meal. In other words, it's not just baptism that is an expression of our oneness. It's the Lord's Supper and all of our life together. So when we come to this table, when we receive the body and blood in the form of bread and wine, We are saying that we too embrace and want to embody a world where there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male and female. There is no you fill in the blanks. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. There are no lines we draw to create another. Simply a wide array of humans to love. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way also, after supper, he took the cup. And he gave it to them and said, Take, drink, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Come to the table where there is one. I open with that Hafiz poem. Beautiful, rowdy prisoners who have had keys dropped at their feet so they can unlock fear. I send you into the world as those who are no longer slaves to fear, but children of God.
Children who recognize that there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, or male and female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. So go love on someone and share the gospel. Amen.